0: Welcome to the Explore Words Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In today's thought provoking episode, we delve into the life and times of China's greatest philosopher, Confucius. Author Jonathan Clements outlines the life and times of China's greatest philosopher, concentrating on sides rarely seen the younger years of Confucius, his interaction with his pupils, his views with his enemies, and even his sarcastic wit. Originally recorded at Bradford Literature Festival 2022, this discussion casts light on the lesser-known sides of Confucius. Good evening everybody um, and a very very warm welcome to Bradford Literature Festival and to this event the man behind the myths about Confucius with Jonathan Clements. Uh, Just a bit of housekeeping uh, if you have got a mobile phone please make sure it's on silent. Um, This event there may be some photography in this event so if any reason you can't be photographed please raise your hand and we'll give you a yellow lanyard so that you we, you'll be edited out essentially. <laughs> um, so um, it's a real pleasure to welcome Jonathan um, this evening. He has actually come all the way from Finland for this talk, that's where he lives. So, um, as Confucius said, it is a delight to receive friends from afar. Please welcome Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Thank you. I I gave Rose that quote and didn't tell her that I'm going to completely deconstruct it at some point uh, (laughs) later on today because that is the quote that begins the Analects of Confucius. It's one of his most famous sayings uh, and I think it's completely passive aggressive uh, and uh, and much more insulting than it first sounds. But we'll get to that eventually. Um, So uh, Confucius uh, as you probably know, is an ancient thinker, uh, a teacher, a philosopher from about 2,500 years ago. Um, his actual dates are 551 BC to about 479. We don't know when he died, but we do know that one of his books suddenly stops in that year. So we, and it's a history book, so we figure he kind of ran out of things to say by keeling over at that point. Um, and uh, the image you've got up here, um, I. I uh, is uh, just one of the many statues of him floating around China. No one really knows what he looks like. So this this one, he just looks a bit like Roy Castle, as far as I can see. Um, but uh, there's no real uh, image of him from the time that he was alive. So everything's a guess. Everything is a guess. Um, a little bit about me. That's me there interviewing a ghost master in Guangxi province uh, a few years ago. Um, I, uh, for my sins, uh, I'm a TV presenter for National Geographic and they send me around China uh, to the most obscure places they can find um, to find out about Chinese culture and Chinese history um, for a show called Root Awakening. Uh, and I have presented three seasons of it and it's been broadcast in 31 countries and Britain isn't one of them. So this is a real case of nobody knowing how famous I am. Uh, however. We did do a show about Confucius called Shandong, Land of Confucius, and it's on YouTube. Somehow, it's got onto YouTube and National Geographic haven't had it pulled yet. So if any of you want to follow up some of the things I'm saying uh, tonight and to see what these places actually look like, you can see it on YouTube uh, for free. Um, Something else you can see for free is Confucius in America. This is the pediment of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and what they've done when they designed it is that all the way along here there are famous lawmakers from all over the world, representatives of all the cultures that have come together in America. So here in the middle, my laser pointer doesn't work on this screen, so here in the middle that is, uh, what's his name, Moses. That's Moses with his tablets uh center space. This here, Solon, not so well known unless you're Greek, but he's a Greek lawmaker. Here, Confucius right in the middle of things. Um, Because even if people don't know the works of Confucius, they're pretty sure he's probably something important and something wise. Um, And he does get quoted by the US Supreme Court. Uh, The most recent uh, quote from Confucius, from the US Supreme Court, I found, was from 2015. And it was part of the argument about gay marriage. Not something Confucius was ever consulted on, or had anything to say about, Um, but this is Justice Kennedy in 2015, um, and you don't don't need to know the whole quote. Uh, For for those of you who can't see the whole quote, don't panic, you don't need to know it. But he ends up saying, Confucius taught that marriage lies at the foundation of government. Well, he, he, he probably said something a bit like that, but one of the problems with Confucian sayings is that a lot of people make them up. Now, Justice Kennedy, bless him, has actually given a, a quote. He, he said it's from Li Chu, uh, Li Ji, the, the Book of Rites. So I'll tell you now, this is part of the problem with the works of Confucius. The actual sayings of Confucius, which are collected in the Analects, um, along with the Doctrine of the Mean and the Great Learning, which are the books which contain actual supposed quotes from him, um, they're very compact, It is possible to memorize them, and in fact memorizing them was the basis of the Chinese exam system right up until the 20th century, Um, but there are other books that Confucius supposedly used in his teaching. He had his little disciples and he had a curriculum that he tried to establish, Um, and so the books that he used for teaching were also kind of shoved together as works of Confucius. The Book of Rites is a, a list of all kinds of bumps from Bronze Age China, including recipes. Um, and Confucius didn't actually write it, but people associate it with him. Um, in terms of Confucius' life, uh, he had a very interesting uh, beginning. His father was a soldier, a very old soldier, um, who was looking for uh, a new wife. Um, and very, very keen on having a, a son and heir because his, his eldest son, his other, his other son, was disabled and could not carry on the family tradition. Um, and so he approached uh, a man and, um, who had three daughters, and he said, I'm kind of interested in wife number two, if you have one available. Um, and, uh, and the man said, well, my youngest is really irritating. You could probably have her. Um, and, uh, and the youngest in question, who was only a teenager at the time, she said, "Well, if that's what you want, Dad, I suppose I'll play along with your usual nonsense." Um, so she had a reputation for having quite a sharp tongue, um, and uh, their relationship was described in Chinese as yeah her, a wild union, uh, which is sometimes used for illegitimacy in the case of Confucius, though because their ages were so widely different. In fact, Confucius's father. Ended up dying when he was very young. He was basically raised by a single mother. So he had a kind of uh, uh, modern upbringing. Um, My microphone is starting to drop out a bit, Paul, so you might want to watch. If if it does completely, this large man will run in and start fiddling with my wires. Don't panic. Um, Before she gave birth to Confucius, his mother dreamt that she saw a unicorn. Uh, a Jilin, it's a Chinese unicorn. Very difficult to get pictures of Chinese unicorns because they don't exist. Um, but I have found this picture, uh, which is the Japanese version of it. This is a Kirin. If any of you are beer drinkers, you may notice this from Kirin Beer. They have a Chinese unicorn as their logo. And a unicorn is supposedly a symbol of a sage king. When you see a unicorn, it means a sage king is about to be born. And supposedly it only happens every 500 years. And she dreamt of a unicorn with a ribbon tied around its horn. Um, So she thought that her uh, her son was destined for great things. But actually, he wasn't destined for very great things at all in his own lifetime. Uh, He became a relatively minor political official who didn't get a lot done. Um, He had very strong opinions uh, about what the right thing to do was, and he tried to get work as a political consultant, but no one was really interested in what he had to say. And uh, this is how China looked at the time, Um, and the difference between China uh, in the Bronze Age and uh, China now is mainly, it's a whole bunch of different kingdoms, There's a tiny little kingdom in the middle, Joel, which is where the sovereign, the the son of heaven, lives. And all of these other areas are dukedoms and princedoms that are supposedly uh, paying homage and and paying respect and and vassal states, as it were, towards the central kingdom. Actually, the guy in the middle was more like a pope. He didn't really have any secular authority. And as time went on, all all of these dukedoms rebranded themselves as kingdoms, and started fighting among themselves. Confucius actually came from Lu, this kingdom here. Chufu is his uh, birthplace. And that's where all the cool Confucian tourism happens today. But this became part of the formulation of his philosophy. um, Because Confucius's whole argument really stems from the awful conditions that he found himself in with all this argument going on between the countries. He said, the myths, the legends that we have, let's assume that they're true, and let's assume that there was a time in the past when our ancestors were perfect, when our ancestors lived for 300 years, and they threw thunderbolts at each other, and they were demigods, and then here we are, and the world we're in is a garbage fire. What went wrong? And the question of what went wrong is one that animated a lot of the Chinese philosophers of the Bronze Age. And Confucius said, I think what we've got wrong is that we've forgotten ritual, we've forgotten our place in the universe, we've forgotten how to be nice to one another. Um, and so one of the things that he used to teach, uh, well firstly he was completely agnostic about the afterlife, about the supernatural, uh, Confucius said nothing about uh, the the afterlife or the world afterwards. He said, I don't know, I don't know till I get there. Let's talk about the material things we can see around us now. Let's deal with the world now. Secondly, uh, he was a teacher, and he was in charge of uh, creating a a group of people who could become the the next generation of politicians. He thought the 300 songs were the best way of teaching people uh, everything they needed to know about the world. And so, in fact, uh, they're, they're, it's still extant. You can read them. They are available in English. The the, the 300 songs that Confucius selected um, to teach people um, about the ways of the world. And they're a fascinating glimpse of China in the Bronze Age. as a very diverse country. And you see uh, stories from all over China. You see who the important political figures are of the day, who the famous celebrities are, who the famous scandals were about, and everything's supposed to teach you something. And Confucius ended up saying that he thought um, the 300 songs were the perfect way of educating uh, young gentlemen uh, about how they should live. But he ended up saying, and this is in Analects 2, this is one of the quotes from him, if I must take a single phrase to summarize it all, it's let there be... No evil in your thoughts. Now, the idea was that, uh, or, or the issue that, 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 that sprung from this was that people have argued about what this really means ever since. Because he says, if people are controlled by laws and kept in line by punishment, they just try and avoid punishment. But if we encourage everyone to behave in the correct way, then that correctness spreads out throughout society and creates a perfect society. So other philosophers, in China in particular, have argued about this ever since. That's the philosopher gong, uh, it tells me that 15 minutes have gone past. So, uh, some of Confucius's uh, philosophical descendants said, well what he's saying here is that everyone is inherently good and we need to be good. one another and maintain this goodness. But some of his enemies, particularly uh, legalist philosophers like Shang Yang and Han Fei Zhe, said, no, 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 everyone's evil, everyone is horrible, and we need laws to control people. And this has been an argument that's been going on with the successes of uh, Confucius ever since. Um, Another quote from him uh, is to, to never let your faith falter. Love learning, If attacked, be ready to die for truth. Do not enter a place of danger, nor a state in revolt. When justice prevails under heaven, then show yourself. When it does not, then hide your face. And so on. Um, And this became a a matter of principle for him that completely ruined his political career. Because the state that he was in, uh, Lu, which uh, I showed you before, was subject to an awful series of cataclysms and what amounted to a coup basically, an awful bunch of carpetbaggers took over and the state just collapsed into corruption and sleaze and Confucius wanted nothing to do with it. And so at what should have been the peak of his career, uh, moving from an educator to becoming a politician, he left his home state and wandered around China. Um, and this map uh, is an attempt to work out where it was that he went, because the Analects of Confucius are all out of order, the whole story is unchronological, um, but But are various references to people who die at certain points and what the season is and where he went from one state to another, which allow us to sort of work out the journey that he made. And as you can see, he, he covered most of what is now China and his wanderings. Um, But he was undertaking these wanderings in late middle age, early old age. He was bitter that no one seemed to listen to him. And so there is a certain bitterness and a certain sardonic quality to a lot of the things that he said. Although sometimes people don't notice them. For example, this is the quote that begins the Analects. This is Analects 1. And you will hear this all over. If you ever go to China, someone is going to quote this at you you're at a business dinner, you're at a university lecture, whatever, someone, you've come from afar, they're going to say, it is a pleasure to learn and to put your learning to its appropriate use. It is a delight to receive friends from afar. It is a quality of the true of heart that they do not care, they are not famous. And I find this to be quite passive-aggressive. Because although... Everyone likes to quote this, and I've put it in Chinese for you underneath, just in case you needed to uh, check. Um, Although it's a very uh, noble sentence, I feel that it's got a lot more to do with his period in exile. And this is your annoying friend Confucius ringing your doorbell at 6 o'clock in the evening on a Wednesday and saying, It's a delight to welcome friends from afar, and I've shown up with 72 disciples, and we need some hay for the horses, and I hope you don't mind if we can stay for the night, or possibly six months. Um, So that's one of the odd quotes of Confucius. Um, And here, uh, we have him with his 72 disciples. A suspiciously complete number, because there were 72 states in the old China. Um, so it is my suspicion, as it has been of many postmodern scholars, that over the years, the work of Confucius have accreted fake quotes, uh, stories about various disciples who come from various kingdoms that have been added by people from those kingdoms, so they all get a look in. Um, slightly suspicious. Um, one of them uh, was an ex-convict. Um, who married Confucius's daughter, thereby proving that anyone can improve their lives. Uh, Confucius's thoughts on the matter, however, are not noted. Um, one of his pupils, uh, one of my favorites, is a guy called Zulu, uh, who was a former soldier, and he was very kind of rough and ready, and was, he worked as the bodyguard and the heavy sometimes, if they ever got into trouble. And Zulu once said to Confucius, you know, uh, a lot of your philosophy can be dealt with much more simply if I sharpen this stick and poke people with it. Because I'm f- pretty sure I can get a long way with a pointy stick. And Confucius said, that and an education make you smart. Uh, he, he used to argue all the time with Zulu. Some of, the, some of the best stories. Now, this is an image from the Confucius film starring Zhao yun Fat. Um, and I've got this image because I don't have an image of the lady in question, Um, one of the most controversial stories in the works of Confucius was his meeting with Lady Nanza. Um, And this is Lady Nanza from the film. Now, Lady Nanza was a duchess in southern China uh, who was very publicly having an affair with her own brother. So it was a huge scandal. They were ridiculously powerful, so nobody stopped them. Um, and Confucius was going through her state and she invited him for an audience and this caused all kinds of trouble because Confucius is all about the correct ritual a duchess invites you to dinner you've got to go but it's Lady Nanza she's a fallen woman she's a scandalous figure so he had absolute conniptions about this and didn't know what to do and eventually very reluctantly went along And his meeting with Lady Nanza is very famous, because it's one of the only times in the Analects that we grapple with what Confucius may have thought about women. Um, And uh, this film, I'm I'm not a fan of the Confucius film, but I am a fan of this scene, because the actress who plays Nanza plays her absolutely perfectly, because she runs rings around Confucius, she's got all these great ideas that he is still kind of struggling to make sense of. Um, and so she's, she's very smart and she's quite irascible and very pretty as well. And, and it's implied that Confucius was a bit smitten with her and, and, and didn't know how to handle her. Um, the other quote from Confucius about women uh, is a Les Dawson joke. Show them kindness and they take advantage. Keep your distance and they sulk. Um, I should probably mention he didn't get on very well with Mrs. Confucius. Uh, and they were eventually divorced. Hard to imagine why. Now, um, the thing about this is, is that uh, modern feminists have tried to find a way through Confucianism to find a place for women within it. But those of you, those ladies of you in the audience who are wondering if there is anything in Confucianism for you, the answer is probably not. Um, it's a Bronze Age philosophy for an age when women were expected to be sequestered, protected certainly, looked after by their husbands or their sons, Um, but uh, it's very difficult to find a progressive modern message in the way that Confucius uh, uh, talks about women. I'll talk about that more in the questions if you like, Um, but uh, there there is a whole book uh, uh, which is supposedly feminist perspectives on Confucius uh, and (laughs) it's utter rubbish um, because there aren't any. So obligations and protection were okay for women. One of the other long-term effects of Confucianism on women in China has been that it was considered rude to address a lady by her name under Confucian rituals. And this is some kind of chivalry, or is intended as such, but what it's meant is is that for 2,000 years of Chinese history, a lot of women are completely anonymous in the official record. Um, And so as a historian, it becomes very difficult to tell women's stories when you don't even know what their names are. Um, one of the books he was also associated with was something called the Spring and Autumn Annals, which is a history of the state of Lu, year by year. Um, and uh, after his death, this became uh, people wrote concordances about the Spring and Autumn Annals, um, saying that every single word in the Spring and Autumn Annals was precisely intended, even the typos. So there are these ridiculously long concordances about what Confucius supposedly wrote in this history book. Um, and uh, the spring and autumn annals is the one that ends very suddenly in the year that we think Confucius died, uh, and the last entry is when he is called away to consult on a on a cryptozoological matter. They hear there's some weird animal in the state of Lu, and they want him to explain what it is, and they call him to this place to see this weird animal that someone's run across in the forest. And it's a unicorn with a little ribbon tied to its horn. And Confucius starts to weep. And he says, for who have you come? For who have you come? Because the unicorn is the the prophet of the sage king. So it's very possible that Confucius thought, and people argue about this all the time, Confucius thought, okay, we've got a unicorn. We found a unicorn. The sage king is going to be born. And I'm so old, I'm going to miss it. And that's why he's crying. Or he realizes something that will be said later about him uh, after his death, that he is the sage king and he was never crowned and that now he's going to die and that he's heralding his death. And he did in fact die soon afterwards we think. And in fact 300 years after the time of Confucius, he was listed among the kings of China in the Grand Scribes record as the uncrowned king. So, did the sage king rise after Confucius' death? Nope. Uh, In fact, China collapsed into a series of ridiculously complicated civil wars. Uh, It's called the Warring States period, the clue's in the name. Um, And it all ended uh, with uh, the, the westernmost state, Qin, conquering all the other remaining countries and the ruler of Qin proclaiming himself to be the first emperor of China, and so this was the beginning of China as a monolithic state, as, as all these little countries that I showed you before now incorporated into one massive realm. Uh, and of course, most famously, the first emperor Qin Shi Huangdi uh, was buried with uh, what we now know to be the Terracotta Army. And Qin Shi Huang, uh, his state, they believe that it won by being completely anti. Confucius. They were what's known as legalists. They didn't think people were inherently good. They thought people were inherently bad and needed to be kept in line by punishments all the time. And so uh, the Qin state was run on grounds that it would not be too much of a stretch to call fascist. It was a, a constant state of military awareness. It conquered all of China and it lived in this state of punishment and martial law. And uh, one of the things that the first emperor tried to do is to burn all the books that referred to history beforehand, to wipe out all records of people like Confucius so that he could establish a kind of year zero. Um, and the picture that I've now put up here is of when we were shooting the land of Confucius. We were in Chufu, we were in the, the ancestral temple of Confucius's uh, uh, family, and I found this. It says, "It says uh, Lu Bi, the, the the wall of Lu." So the important thing is the big brick wall behind me, and the film crew didn't care at all because it's just a wall. But I was very excited um, because during the purges of the first emperor, uh, Confucius's family hid Confucius's books inside that wall, and for 80 years, 90 years, they were completely lost to the world. And then someone was remodeling the house and they found these scrolls. And almost every version of Confucius that we have today is descended from the scrolls found in that wall. Uh, There are other versions available. We've dug them up in tombs. There were some that people didn't know know about at the time. They've since come to light. But basically, if you want a, a, a a genealogical tree of where those works came from, most of them were hidden in that wall. After the fall of the first emperor, however, um, the Han Dynasty, which replaced him, which lasted for 400 years, did very well for itself, roughly coterminous with the Roman Empire, wanted desperately to associate themselves with being the the exact opposite of the first emperor. And so they they loved Confucius. They adopted Confucius, frankly, as their state religion. And they started to set uh, the Confucian books in their civil service exams. It actually took almost a thousand years for this to really get going. But basically, for about 1,500 years, up until the year 1904, 1905, if you wanted a job in the Chinese government, you had to memorize the works of Confucius, and you had to sit the exam uh, regurgitating them. And this uh, was not necessarily a good idea. in 1904, when the man who would become Chairman Mao tried to sit the Imperial Civil Service exam, he was asked questions about the works of Confucius, and I think it might have been better for China by then if he was being asked questions on chemistry or physics or, you know, something useful. Um, And so uh, Confucianism uh, among the modernists, among Chinese Republicans, got the blame for trapping China in the past, for forcing China To live constantly in this Bronze Age fantasy rather than engaging more with the modern world. Of course, one of its most famous enemies uh, was was Chairman Mao. Um, So even though he had a Confucian education, even though, I'll wait for the gong to stop, you know. So even though he had a Confucian education, even though he had this fantastic homespun grip on... Uh, allusions to Confucius that the people love to hear, Mao was not a fan of him. This is not Chairman Mao, this is a random factory worker um, who is uh, studying the struggle against Confucianism and is criticizing um, uh, Lin Biao, Who uh, I, I, I lack the time or energy to explain who Lin Biao was, but Lin Biao was a politician that Mao really had it in for, and Confucius. And so Confuci- uh, Mao saw Confucianism as one of the things that was dragging China down. It was one of the four olds: old culture and old ideas and, and old stuff. Um, and he, in 1973, he initiated the Criticize Confucius campaign, and the Red Guards took it to heart by blowing up Confucius's tomb. This is the tomb of Confucius today, uh, and there are massive cracks uh, in the gravestone uh, because they dynamited it. Um, and it 's actually been stuck together with staples, and the grave mound behind was completely destroyed, um, so there 's no real evidence of uh, Confucius anymore um, in, in the place of his birth. it 's an empty tomb. Uh, however, the Red Guards were not the worst enemy of Confucius. People often think communism was Confucianism 's worst enemy, but actually postmodernism is Confucius 's worst enemy. In fact, literary criticism is the thing that 's almost destroyed him. If any of you do want to get into Confucianism, I really recommend this book, The Original Analects, by Bruce and Tycho Brooks, uh, who are a couple of American academics. I think they're American. Um, And they decided to get seriously critical, with a computer and a spreadsheet, uh, with the works of Confucius. And if anything was dodgy, or anything an anachronism, they'd take it out. And bit by bit, they picked away at the Analects taking out everything that they were pretty sure was fake that was added in later generations that couldn't have been a quote from him because it it referred to some kind of technology or some kind of item he wouldn't have known about. And at the end of it all this is all they had left from the whole book. So the only words that remain of the real Confucius according to Brooks and Brooks is the master said he does not worry that he has no position He worries about whether he is qualified to hold one. He does not worry that no one recognizes his worth. He seeks to become worthy to be recognized. The gentleman concentrates on right. The little man concentrates on advantage. And so that was Confucianism reduced to absolutely nothing uh, by the 1990s. But not unlike the art of war, not unlike Shakespeare, you can argue all you like about whether or not it's a real quote, for hundreds of years, people lived by it, so Confucianism remains uh, a belief system that people trust in. Um, I, in fact, uh, when I was in Shandong, uh, that's me there with the funny hat, um, I went to a Confucian school uh, where, where this man here, he's a, he's a teacher, he's a lovely man, he tries to teach Chinese children by the precepts of Confucianism, and so the whole school is run on Confucian lines. Um, some of, some of it's very weird. Like they always have to bow to their teachers. So I was there when the kids were arriving in the morning. And as they were walking across the playground, every one of them had to stop and bow to every teacher in the playground. And it was absolute chaos. Um, also, um, some of the quotes from Confucius have been taken very literally. So there's one that says, Confucius did not speak a lot while eating. And I take this to mean, unpacking the classical Chinese, that he didn't make small talk. Uh, But at this school, no one's allowed to speak during lunch. And we had this very difficult conversation about whether or not we could get our drone up in the temple, but we had to do it completely in sign language uh, because we weren't allowed to speak when we were there. Um, In the 21st century, the People's Republic of China has come to recognize Confucius uh, as a much more useful icon to them, as a a unifying symbol of of Chinese culture. Some of you may well be aware of the Confucius Institutes that there are around the world. Um, And I have very mixed feelings about this. Uh, Some of you may know the Confucius Institutes have uh, a reputation for pushing a People's Republican agenda. They uh, will teach you Chinese and they'll teach you calligraphy and they'll do some cultural outreach stuff, but you won't be allowed to talk about Tibet or Taiwan or Xinjiang. The thing is, however, is every country has a cultural outreach organization. In Britain we have the British Council, um, but most of them are named after famous celebrity icons. So the Germans have the Goethe Institute and the Spanish have the Instituto Cervantes and so every, I think it's the Da Vinci I think for the Italians, everyone's named them after someone famous. If the Confucius Institute had been called the Chairman Mao Institute, people would be a lot less surprised at the way they behaved. But because they've gone for this very fluffy, very unifying philosopher, a man who is you know, appreciated and admired, not just in China, but in Korea, in Japan, in Singapore, um, the, then people are more surprised. And the Confucius Institutes are all over the place. Um, they, you know, There's 173 in Europe, or well, there were last time I counted. Some of them get shut down after various university spats. The other weird thing, and, and you will not believe this, you will think I'm making this up, so do Google it afterwards, is a bunch of nutters in China decided that the Nobel Peace Prize was racist, um, and that I think a Chinese dissident received the Nobel Peace Prize at some point, and so as a result they came up with a thing they called the Confucius Prize, to give it to national leaders who really deserve it, um, And it didn't do very well because the first two people they gave it to was Vladimir Putin and Robert Mugabe. And after that, the Confucius Prize has kind of faded out from view. I think they ran out of dictators at that point. Um, But uh, yes, so Vladimir Putin is a a grateful recipient of the Confucius Prize, Uh, slightly worrying. Um, Since 2005, Confucianism has had a really strong impact on the People's Republic. Uh, because since the reign of Hu Jintao, uh, and and certainly through the the reign of Xi Jinping, uh, they've really grabbed this concept of of the of the harmonious society, which for Confucius meant knowing your place and spreading good, Um, but for the People's Republic uh, can be a little bit more repressive than that, like know your place, don't speak up, much more like that. Um, The reason I'm showing this picture is this is a, a Chinese bullet train Oh, my God, the, the Chinese bullet trains are fantastic, trust me. Um, they're absolutely wonderful. But this is a Hershier Hall. It's a, it's a Harmony Series bullet train. So It's named after Confucius's main principle. Um, and so they've really become part uh, of the modern world in the People's Republic. Uh, although uh, you could argue that when the People's Republic talks about harmony, um, they are behaving less like Confucius and more like the legalists who were opposed to him and wanted to punish him. Uh, To punish people, I should say. If you are interested in pursuing any of this further, I would definitely recommend two books by me. Um, The Brief History of China, which goes through 5,000 years of it in much the manner as I have today, but also uh, my biography of Confucius, called, uh, with with great originality, Confucius, A Biography. But if you do go for that one, I will say the hardback version has less chapters than the paperback. So do go for the paperback or the Kindle if you can, because that's a new edition that adds three extra chapters about the way that Confucius has flourished after his death. Thank you. Now, uh, we do have time for questions. If if anybody has anything they they would like to ask, Uh, I can probably pretend I know the answer. Okay, you're going to be difficult, aren't you? This is Wei Guang now. He's a history student from Leeds, but I'm sure he's going to give me a hard time. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought you were going to ask a question. No, no, he's no. Okay, he's not going to give me a hard time. He's going to bring the microphone to you so you can give me a hard time. Oh, thank you. the red wall behind you in that picture has got has that got anything to do with the uh, subsequent red books and the red colour within China, or is that just um, coincidental? No, that, that that is a coincidence. It's a good point, though. Um, yeah, I mean, red has come to be associated with the Communist Party today, uh, and with, with communism uh, all over the world. But red is the colour of good fortune in China, um, and uh, uh, it's, it's very common for temple buildings to be... I mean, for example, this is, this is uh, Anmen. this is the, the Gate of Heavenly Peace in, in, uh, uh, in the center of Beijing. And you can see the wall is the same color there as well. Um, and it's because it's, it's a, a, a palace. Um, so, yeah, a coincidence. They probably just got a lot of red paint.
0: Thank you very much, it's very interesting. Um, how do we trust the translations?
1: Well, I trust the translations because I did them myself. Um, uh, But uh, there are multiple versions of Confucius, and uh, it's true they have very varying levels of quality. Uh, One of the problems that we face in the modern world is people are cheap. And so uh, there's a very great scholar called James Legg, who in the 19th century translated most of the Chinese classics. Um, And he was very good at what he did, uh, and they're now out of copyright. And so a lot of the cheaper publishers will just grab James Legg and reprint it and hope that that does the trick. But James Legg is missing all, you know, he did make mistakes. Uh, He's missing all kinds of modern context and modern methods. Um, He doesn't have spreadsheets, the ability to tabulate. I mean, one of the great things about the art of war, for example, is that um, if there's a word you don't understand, you can see every other time the authors used it and get what well, it probably means the same thing there, and that kind of uh, digitization has made Chinese scholarship in recent years much better. Also, since the 1970s, there has been an explosion of new classical Chinese books, because in places like Ma dui and uh, Yin Chue Shan, um, construction projects have dug up old tombs that have books that we didn't know even existed, that have original versions of the books that have extra passages we didn't know about. I was in uh, Nanchang uh, three years ago, and there was a guy called the Marquis of Hai Hun, who, it's a long story, I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the good bit. He died and he was buried in a tomb that was hit by an earthquake and fell below the water table and his entire library was preserved underwater for uh, about 1700 years and they've now scooped it up and uh, they're slowly drying it out and it takes several years to dry it out because they have to reapply all these dangerous chemicals. One of the books in the library is, is the works of Confucius with two extra chapters, which no one has read before. Um, and uh, it's one, one is called uh, Wen Wang, Asking the King, and the other one is called Zhida, The Knowledge. I don't think it's about London taxi driving, but who knows? Um, and so all of these thing, all these new developments have come since the 1970s. The Dao De Jing, for example, no translation made before about the 1980s is worth anything because people were working with an incomplete manuscript. And then in Ma Wong Dui, I think, they found a complete Dao De Jing which is a lot less mysterious because it explains everything. Um, So when it comes to the translations, I will say, if it's an illustrated book, stay the hell away from it because they're trying to lure you in with pictures Um, and do, uh, and and normally there's some clue where the translation came from. Something like Confucius, uh, uh, I've translated a lot of him in my biography, but also So, oh God, I should have have written their names down. There are are two or three very good translations available. The Penguin Confucius translation is very good. Uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who did it, but it's very good. Um, And so the scholars working today are are great. Um, And I will warn people off a deceptively cheap, out-of-copyright, old version, because of the speed with which Chinese scholarship uh, moves.
0: What is it about Confucianism that actually appeals to people?
1: (laughs) If I haven't sold it, but yeah, then we're in trouble. Um, Well, the idea of being nice to one another, the idea of inherent goodness, and the idea that uh, it's better to live in a society where people are not controlled by guilt, where they are naturally good to one another. And Confucius had this idea in his head that if everybody behaved in the correct way, if they all locked together in, in this manner, that not only would society, that's the Confucius Gong. Not only would society uh, flourish, but other countries would be take towards it. It's like it, it's a very early indication of soft power, as it were. Um, and there was a story that Confucius did get a chance to run a city along the lines that he wanted. Um, I find it a bit doubtful, but supposedly it happened, and supposedly for three years, he was able to be the mayor of this little town and to run it along the lines that he wanted and to teach people the way that he wanted to. Um, and it was said that if you dropped your umbrella in the street, someone would bring it to you, uh, which is basically how Japan is now, to be honest. But, um, but, but uh, so, so he, he believed it would, be, it would be good and that it would work. It, un- unfortunately, you know, there are holes in the whole argument because we're dealing with a Bronze Age philosopher. He's dealing with with issues that troubled the world two and a half thousand years ago. And, and Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching is even worse. Um, it's very difficult to apply all of his ideas to the modern world. And a lot of Neo-Confucianism and modern Confucianism is only very distantly related to, to what he was saying then. You said it was um, oral tradition that passed things down. Mm-hmm. When were things written down that Confucius said did he write them down and Um, then you you put a slide up that said in the end this is the only thing that we know for truth so how much is there that really is Confucius? According to Brooks and Brooks just that single quote Um, but people tell stories about Confucius Um, he supposedly wrote down everything he said and you can argue with Brooks and Brooks you can say well you're being very persnickety at this point it can't be that bad Surely there was more of it. Um, So uh, these were all written documents that he was, uh, sorry, the the, the teaching materials that he used were all written documents. We actually have a record uh, from the Analects of one of his editorial conferences. They're arguing about exactly how a song should be written down, how the words in it should be spelt. So he was working with a huge amount of documents that already existed. The Analects are supposedly the words of Confucius set down by his disciples. But much like the Bible, we're dealing with people dealing with reported speech 10, 15, 20 years later. So the degree to which it's a faithful account of his words is incredibly doubtful. And then there are other philosophers who come along. Uh, One of my favorite Chinese philosophers. Everyone should have a favorite Chinese philosopher. And if anybody asks, say Shunzi, because no one's heard of him and they'll be really impressed. But Shunzi um, came up with all these stories about things that Confucius got wrong. Um, and, uh, And so there are he offers these criticisms of famous moments in Confucian history, and says, but that's not what really happened. This is what really happened. And you're like, well, you're refuting hearsay with more hearsay at this point, and it all becomes very, very difficult to know what's going on. You had a question as well? Oh, was that your... Oh, all right. It was
0: how it was disseminated, I think you said at the beginning that he wasn't so successful or well-known in his lifetime. So, I'm presuming his disciples disseminated
1: all this this um, knowledge? Yes, he was not so well known. His disciples were very well known. And then there's this crucial moment. um, Well, two crucial moments, actually. Firstly, after the collapse of the first emperor's Qin dynasty, the Han dynasty is desperately scrabbling around for a way of proving that they're different. And they say, we're different because he was anti-Confucius and we're pro-Confucius. During that first period? well. Well, the the thing is, is if if you ask Confucius that question, he would say, there is no Confucian thought. I'm just a teacher. He didn't see himself as an innovator or a radical or anything. He was, in many ways, arch-conservative, and he was trying to get everyone to follow the rules that were already written, and he had very little to add of his own. Um, He just wanted to chip away the things that were distracting people. So... Uh, So, Confucius himself had had very little influence in his own life. 500 years later, I should have mentioned this actually, remember the unicorn? I hope the unicorn is all stuck in your heads, because the unicorn shows up once every 500 years. And 500 years after the time of Confucius, around 0 BC, someone said, sage king's due again, sage king's coming up, I wonder who it will be? Is it the current emperor? Is it the emperor's cousin? Is it the emperor's newborn son? And so Confucianism achieves this huge new uh, attention from everybody. Because in order to accept the possibility of a sage king, of a new golden age, which everyone's very, very keen on, you need to suddenly start following whatever it was Confucius said 500 years earlier. So it, it, it's really uh, about um, about 0 AD, that 1 AD, uh, in fact, in 7 AD, there was a coup in China run by a man claiming to be the sage king. Um, so, you know, it, it's around that time that it all kicks off again. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the books were uh, hidden in that uh, pillar, mm. and they were found uh, after so many years. Uh, how can we say that uh, when the books were found, they were authentic? Oh, I can't. I can't. They could all be fake. Um and that's, you know, that's one of the issues that Brooks and Brooks have, is that they could all be fake. I mean, the fact is, however, is that those books, uh, we don't have the original copies of those books, um, but they were the ones that informed the different versions of Confucian texts that came down. Since then, since the 1970s in particular, we have found versions of Confucius from before that time that match those books in graves. And that's the amazing thing about Ma Wong Dui and um, Xin uh, uh, Chui Shan. Uh, so Ma Wong for example, it was a hospital. They were building a nuclear bunker under a hospital. And one of the workmen lights a fag, and his cigarette lighter comes out blue. The flame comes blue. And it's methane from a tomb nearby. And they realize they're near a tomb. And they dig up this tomb, and they find all of these manuscripts, including... Confucius, matching the one that was found in the wall. So there are many cases where... There's a book called The Spring and Autumn of Master Yen, which for 1,500 years, everybody thought was a fake. And then we found the original in one of those graves. And we were like, oh, God, all this time, it's been a real book. So authenticity is a huge issue, uh, and there's there's no final answer you can give for it, but we have been able to, to retroactively say that some texts can be more authentic than others. Thank you. Uh, The the concept of God. Mm -hmm. Did we have concept of God uh, in Confucius' time? No, Confucius had no concept of God. He refused to discuss the paranormal or the supernatural, because he said he had no direct experience, and by the time he had his experience, he wouldn't be able to tell anybody what it was. Um, So, Confucius did say we should respect our ancestors, And that, over the years, that turned into a form of of the Catholic Church, very famously said, it's ancestor worship, and we can't have this in, you know, we we can't, the Jesuits can't support it. But Confucius himself, very famously, uh, and this is a quote from the Analects, he said nothing about the afterlife. He refused to discuss it in any way. Um, And he said, the rest of you can talk about it if you like, the rest of you can worry about the concept of God or gods, Um, but I'm only interested in the effect I can make. Immediately around me, um, and you'll have to worry about everything else when you die. Yeah. Uh, how much of Confucianism is that uh, integrated within communism nowadays? You know, the Communist mm. Party? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, officially none, but actually, the, the Communist Party um, since 2005 has very carefully tried to make things sound as Confucian as possible. Um, and it's the notion of harmony that they're most keen on, which is actually something they, did. they didn't rip it off from Confucius. They ripped it off from Singapore, who ripped it off from Confucius. Because Singapore, as a multiracial state, was looking for some kind of unifying philosophy, which didn't require a racial ethnic origin. So everyone can agree that Confucius sounds kind of nice. And so Singapore adopted this very Confucian model. And communist China said, oh, that's good. We like the, we like the look of that. Um, so even and this is one of the many contradictions that you get with the People's Republic of China, and this causes huge trouble for me as someone whose job it is is to talk about the Chinese past. Is that if something's a superstition or if it's you know uh, a patriarchal tradition or something, you're not supposed to talk about it. And I'm like, well, it's a historical fact. It really exists. Um, so these days, Confucius, there is. A secret superstition that Confucius is like the god of exams. So everyone who's kids going off to exams, they'll go and pray at the Temple of Confucius. It's probably not real, but we'll give it a go just in case, you know, insurance purposes, it kind of helps. And the, the rhetoric of the Chinese government has been become very Confucian as well. There was an absolutely awful book um, called, um, I can't remember what it's called now, but it was this terrible book that tried to modernize Confucianism in a sort of touchy-feely way um, by an absolutely terrible author, um, and the Communist Party loved it, and they printed something mental like three million copies, and they gave it out in schools and prisons. So if you were a prisoner serving time in, in China, you were given this this, this wawa book about how great Confucianism is, which had no relation whatsoever to Confuci- the real-world version of Confucianism, But it was all very touchy-feely, and let's just be nice to each other. And, you know, when you leave prison, maybe don't murder someone again. Um, Confucius would like that, and so would the Communist Party. So it's that kind of level. Um, And Hershey, harmony, has now become a verb. It's a meme. When someone gets censored, or their their Twitter feed suddenly disappears because of something they said in China, they go, oh, God, I've been harmonized. Um, and, And the symbol for it is a river crab. Because a river crab in Chinese is uh, which is which is a pun on on harmony. So so it, it's uh, it's uh, you know yeah, I can see yeah. you do. yeah he, he does yeah he he he's been harmonised plenty of times. Right. So there there you go. Um, So we're we're approaching, we've got a couple of minutes, so if there's any more questions, we can probably run to one more. Otherwise, I shall free you to go out into the world and be nice to people. If if China eventually rules the world economically and politically, Mm. um, do you think they'll use Confucianism as a guiding principle for everyone? If China gets to rule the whole world with no opposition, it'll be communism all the way. Um, I, I, I... It's possible because um, because it's not religious. It doesn't have uh, a a problem with you know bringing people into the fold because it's just it's not even a belief system really because it's just let's be nice. No one's going to no one's going no. Let's not be nice. Um, So yes, it's a very it's a very handy way of of integrating uh, a country together. And if that country comes to encompass the whole world, a world state, I for one welcome our new Chinese masters, then uh, that will be uh, quite handy. Um, communism has its uh, antagonists, it has its dissidents, it has people who don't like the idea of communism, like most of the rest of the world. So it might be uh, more difficult to impose that. Um, Confucius. Visionism is very much, in many ways, a soft power initiative, so it's much easier to lead with that.
0: Just want to say uh, thank you very much to Jonathan. Um, that was a really, really great talk and it's been a real delight to host him today. Um, and I hope you all enjoyed the event. Uh, let's give our uh, thanks to Jonathan.